I want to pick up where we left off last week with the search for the serpent crusher. As the book of Genesis rolls into Exodus and onwards, we discover a familiar pattern is repeating itself time and time again. Promising serpent crushers reveal themselves to be fragile, to be flawed and to be frail. So what I want to do is just quickly skim through some of the highlights for you. And just to mention a few of the main characters that are there in the Old Testament. And as we do so, you will discover that they have two things in common. All of them both show success, but also, unfortunately, failures. Can I challenge you, if you have time over the Christmas period, maybe to take some time out and just read some of these great stories in their fullness, just to discover both the successes of these men of God, but also perhaps to learn from their failures as well. So after Abraham, who we talked about last week, we meet Isaac in Genesis chapter 26. But Isaac, unfortunately, he doesn't learn from his dad's mistakes. In fact, he makes the same ones over again. His son Jacob then, we find him in Genesis chapter 27. He's clever. He is the heir to the promises. But he's also cunning, he's scheming, and he's selfish too. In Genesis 37, we meet a guy called Joseph. Most folks will have heard of Joseph, well known, of course, for his multicolored coat. And he is blessed by God. But isn't he just a little bit tactless? As we come into Exodus, in Exodus chapter 2, we meet Moses. Moses, the great lawgiver. But he was also a common murderer. And then Joshua. A great leader, great leader of God's people. But in Joshua chapter 9, we see how he fails to consult the Lord and he makes a bad decision. And then a little bit further on in 1 Samuel, we meet one of the first kings of Israel, a guy called Saul. And Saul is strong. In fact, he's head and shoulders above the rest. But he's also cowardly and disobedient towards God. And after so many disappointments, it seems to be less and less hope of ever being able to find the serpent crusher. However, a little later on in 1 Samuel, there seems at least to be the glimmer of a little bit more hope. Because surely a man who is described as a man after God's heart, perhaps he might be the serpent crusher. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. It says this. Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, How can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to that sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town came, trembling to meet him. What's wrong? they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel looked 
took one look at Elab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by appearances or height. I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one that the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shimea. But Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons that you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied. But he's out in the field watching the sheep and the goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil that he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramai. Now throughout this story, we discover what God really cares about in verse 7. See, the Lord doesn't see things the way in which you or I see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And your heart is what you really are. It's the place of secrecy that contains your thoughts, your feelings, the things that nobody else knows about but God. And what you are on the invisible root and core matters as much, if not more, to God than what you are on the visible outside. And from your heart flows all the issues of life. But if your heart is right, well then your life will be right. Yet despite all of this, we still have this tendency to love and to look for strong heroes and leaders. But history teaches us that it is always a mistake to put our hope in a person To put someone up on a pedestal to build them up in our expectations is to place someone too high and to put them in such a position that there's only one place that they could possibly go, and that is to fall. And the Bible's story of God's people and their leaders are a perfect example of this. They continue this pattern of great promise followed by disappointing failure. Now, don't get me wrong. These people that we read about are truly remarkable. They are truly great men of God. They are courageous, they're dedicated, they're often prayerful and trusting in God's promises. But in the end, they are sinful, fallen creatures just like you and me who are tempted to take the glory for themselves when it's very clear that it's the Lord who has been working through them. And we must be careful of this. Listen, in every aspect and area of your life, you must make sure that God gets the glory. Listen, when God maybe uses you, maybe even in an amazing way, perhaps you you pray for someone and they are healed. Listen, we must never take the glory for that. It's only God who heals. God must get the glory. Or perhaps you get an opportunity to share your faith and they come to know Jesus Christ. Again, God must get the glory. It is God who works through us and we must we must point people towards him 
But given the background of repeated failures, it's somewhat remarkable that God's people then and even now still hunger for strong leaders who will rule justly and who will rule well. In fact, who will lead them into peace and into prosperity. But actually, the thing is, this is instinctively given to us by God. It's a gift from God. But to place that expectation on ordinary moral, mortal men and women is to misplace it. You see, all human leaders will be flawed, no matter where they are. Even within church life and in church leadership, we will let you down. Perhaps not intentionally, but we will let you down. We will make mistakes. In a sense, we can do nothing else. But this should never stop us from instinctively looking and yearning for God's flawless, courageous, trusting, prayerful, powerful hero and leader. And the frailty and the failures of others only serve to make us hunger for him all the more. But actually throughout David's life, we begin to see some hope. We just, just as we did back in Genesis chapter 3 where we start to see that glimmer of hope of salvation, so we begin to see the green shoots of salvation beginning to appear in and through the life of David. You see, he truly was a great king, a mighty warrior, a man after God's heart, the conqueror of Jerusalem. But as for serpent crusher, no. He was an adulterer and a murderer. And David follows the pattern of the hopeful heroes and fails. And this tragedy repeats itself throughout the life of his son as well. The son, his son is called Solomon. But King David truly was the high point in Israel's history. Because from that point onward, there is this long and slow descent of Israel's kings until God brings about the national tragedy of exile from the land. But significantly, during David's lifetime, God has added a new promise. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11. Just picking up about halfway through verse 11, it says this. The Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build the house, a temple for my name. And I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And if he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do. But my favour will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time and your throne will be secure forever of the king of David's line that will rule forever. And this is an amazing promise, an incredible promise. A new king is promised and that promise is picked up actually by the prophet Isaiah as well in Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 to 5. Listen to this. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From the, from the roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or, dis or decide by what he hears with his ears. 
but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of this earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And as we have mentioned already, Jesse was the father of David, one of the greatest kings of Israel. But a shoot from the stump of Jesse will come a new King David. Now the fact that that comes from the stump suggests that the current house of David is about to fall. But God's new king has authority not only because of his lineage and his ancestry, but also because the spirit of the Lord anoints him to lead God's people. And he will be so different from his ancestors and such a contrast to the current house of David. So as the descendants of David fail, the prophets start to look forward to a coming king, to God's promised Messiah, the one that has been promised throughout the Old Testament has prophetically been talked about by so many different people in so many different places. And intriguingly, this king will rule the world by the words from his mouth, not with a sword or with armies. And the qualities of this king are again staggering. In fact, they are mind-blowing. God's spirit will be on him. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge. And he will fear and he will obey the Lord. He will not judge by appearance, but he will be just and he will be fair. And he will be clothed with righteousness and with truth. You know, even the most well-being, well-meaning rulers get it wrong sometimes because they can only judge by what they can see with their eyes. But God's king will always judge with perfect justice. But also he will reign and his reign will bring peace. And he will even affect the created order. He will undo what the fall and our sins throw into frustration. In fact, he will bring things back into perfect harmony. In fact, this is Romans chapter 8, verse 19. It says, For all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against his will, all creation was subject to God's, to, to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and from decay. And this is the amazing promise of the curse undone, of Eden restored, and peace with God. And the scope of Isaiah's vision in chapter 11 is simply breathtaking. God's new king will gather his scattered people from the four corners of the earth in a new exodus. People taken out of slavery and brought into the hope that is ours in and through Jesus Christ into the new promise that is found. So you can sense, I hope you can sense that the excitement is building. Prophetically, it's building. Everything seems to be pushing and coming together. But when is this person coming? When is this king going to arrive? Listen, God does not work according to our timing. In fact, he's never in a rush. He's never under pressure. And yet still, his timing is absolutely perfect. And from the time of David, more than seven, 800 years go past and still, there's no sign of him. 
And then it feels as if suddenly everything seems to change. Turn to me, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And Matthew begins his gospel by writing, This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. And what follows is a long list of names. Many of the people we've mentioned already, of course, are part of that list. Begins in chapter 2 with Abraham. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah was the father of, of Peraz, and Zerah by Tamar, and Peraz the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amimabadad, and Amimabadad the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abadub, and Abadub was the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim was the father of Azor. And Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok was the father of Achim, and Achim was the father of Elud, and Elud was the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer was the father of Matan, and Matan was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon 14 generations and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ 14 generations. Now some people may find this long list of names fascinating but I guess many of you perhaps just like me would be very tempted just to skip through them all, fast forward them through and get to verse 18 as quickly as possible. But if we do that, we miss out on so much because there's an absolutely important reason why they're here. The question is why? Or perhaps a better question is, why was it so important to the original readers and to us to know Jesus' credentials? Well, first of all, Notice how this list is structured in and around David and Abraham, verse 1, verse 6, verse 17. See, Jesus Christ doesn't just pop onto the scene from absolutely nowhere, making some amazing and great claims about himself. No, this is all part of God's great plan of history. This is no accident. These things don't just come together by some, some accident of fate. No, God's hand is in this and through this and in all of this. Also remember the promise to Abraham 
which says, through your offspring, all the nations of this earth shall be blessed. In other words, by putting this list first, Matthew is saying, here he is, the saviour promised since Abraham. So Abraham is mentioned here because Abraham is all about promise. In fact, he's emphasized to remind us of the faithful promises of God that are not limited by time. You see, when God makes a promise to us, God keeps his promise. God does not let you down. God can be absolutely trusted. So if Abraham is all about promise, then why the emphasis on David? Well, that is saying something else. Now, you may or may not have noticed as you've got to verse 6, but Matthew goes into a little bit more detail. See, Jesus is the promised king in the line of David. David was one of the greatest kings of Israel, as we've said, but he was, the sort of, he was the kind of king that you wanted to have on your side, the king that is famous for smashing all of his enemies and making God's people great. But as we've seen, David also failed big time. In fact, Matthew takes the time to highlight that in verse 6. So he mentions Uriah. In fact, he was the guy that David slept with his wife. He committed adultery with his wife Bathsheba and then had him murdered. But also David, like all of the other ancestors on this list, he also died. But in the Old Testament, as we've read already in Isaiah, there's this promise of another David, another king that is to come, who will neither die nor will he fail, but who truly would reign over God's people without disappointing them. And this this genealogy is Matthew's way of saying, here he is. Here's the one that is promised, the one who is promised by Abraham, but also here is the king, the king in the line of David. In fact, a new King David. Here he is. Here's the one that's been talked about throughout the Old Testament. He has arrived. And this list should make us feel joyful and confident, not bored. It is saying loud and clear that you simply cannot dismiss Mary's baby. Whatever you do with baby Jesus, you've got to at least stop and take note. Because what is happening here is of great significance. Mary is pregnant with the promise of the ages. The child who is born is the hope for all human history. I know some of you that this Christmas time will be a time of great joy. For others, it will be tinged with a little bit of sadness. For still others, for perhaps a few, it may even be a time of deep despair. But listen, because Jesus Christ was the one who left heaven and came down to this earth, who lived a life on this earth, he knows exactly what you're going through. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to face pain. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows and he understands everything that you're going through this Christmas time. And this genealogy points us to the true and to the lasting joy this Christmas because it reminds us that the baby born into the manger 2,000 years ago is the promised one who has fulfilled all of the prophecies. This is God in flesh, the promised filling hope and light of our world, our one true king and great news this Christmas time. Jesus Christ is our hope now and forever. And I want to encourage you 
at least to take a moment and think about him. You know, we have one hope in this life, and that is to know God and to to have relationship with God. That can only happen through Jesus. Do you know him? Have you ever given your life over to him? Listen, it starts by turning from your sins, by repenting of them and giving everything over to Jesus, the one who died for you, the one who rose again, the one who is Lord over all. And this Christmas is a reminder that Jesus loved you enough to come into this world and to give everything that you might have peace with God. So if you don't know him, perhaps now is the time to turn to him. Let's pray.